This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to season three of Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast about Hollywood and history. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. You know, it's it's kind of a cliche thing to say that we all lived through the Cold War. Sure, we lived with a specter of nuclear annihilation hanging over our heads, but truth be told, it seemed pretty remote to most Americans and probably Russians too. I don't know about you, but I feel a lot more stressed out post 9-11, post-Trump, post-accelerated end-of-the-world climate change than I ever did about some strange love scenario. The movies we covered so far, you know, kind of address the big issues we associate with the Cold War. Nuclear war, McCarthyism, you know, vast military industrial complexes, and shadow governments. But the Cold War wasn't remote or academic. It filtered down to every corner of life and every corner of America. Definitely. Now, we both know our Cold War history pretty well and can tick off all the major events and dates. We know all the proxy wars that bled both sides dry and wreaked havoc across the globe. I mean, Cold War for whom, really? That's the question. Not in Central America, Afghanistan, and certainly not in Vietnam. We could do a whole season or three on Vietnam war films for lies agreed upon alone. But in this one episode, we chose three films that get to a very specific point about the Cold War's omnipresence in American daily life. These are about the home front and a reminder that the Vietnam War deeply wounded American society from top to bottom. We aren't here to revisit Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. The point this week is to address how Hollywood dramatized what the war did to us at home, not just to the soldiers in country. Our first film is Michael Cimino's The Deer Hunter, which came out in 1978. It's an epic taking us from the Allegheny Mountains in Pennsylvania to Vietnam and back again. Hal Ashby's Coming Home also came out in 1978 and dares to represent the plight of severely wounded veterans and their caretakers, mostly women, whose experiences are largely dismissed by Hollywood. The third film is the first to reflect on the experience of black soldiers. Spike Lee's The Five Bloods came out in 2020, a time when Vietnam seemed like ancient history, but it's really not. So what are the lies agreed upon for this episode? Well, I think the first is what we just said, that the Cold War was a distant, persistent threat to our existence, but it didn't influence our daily lives at the ground level. Our fascination with Vietnam films stems in part from our desire to know what it was really like there, as they say, in country. 
And of course, it influenced the lives of the half a million sent over there and millions more drafted into the effort. And of course, the millions of Vietnamese. The second lie concerns how we tend to treat Vietnam, at least in pop culture, as a separate event from other sweeping sociocultural changes happening at the same time. So many of our favorite films on the subject are about the soldiers facing all the physical and psychological traumas thousands of miles from home. Think Platoon or Full Metal Jacket or the mythic Apocalypse Now, which of course isn't even trying to comment on reality. Coming Home and Five Bloods in particular show how Vietnam fundamentally altered society, such as Jane Fonda's character turning from you know, status quo conservatism to feminism after being exposed to the misery of returning veterans, or the Five Bloods framing their struggles as black men in America through the lens of their Vietnam experience. Spike Lee even manages to link the legacy of Vietnam to Trump. The point is, no part of society was untouched by Vietnam. There was nowhere to hide. So let's recap these films, two from 1978, a year that kicked off a decade of memorable Vietnam War films, and one with quite a bit of distance from the event made just a few years ago, technically sitting outside of our you know, Cold War film uh, criteria. Let's start with The Deer Hunter, which was directed by Michael Cimino and co-written by Cimino and Derek Washburn. What can we say about Cimino? Well, he's what we might call eccentric. The Deer Hunter was his great improbable success. He won Best Director, Best Picture, and then his next effort, Heaven's Gate, was one of the greatest box office bombs in history. The Deer Hunter is also blessed with one of those legendary casts from the 70s. Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep, John Savage, John Cazale, and I've always been a fan of George Zunda. I assume that's how you pronounce it. Uh, a great character actor. And of course, Christopher Walken won Best Supporting Actor. And this is uh, Streep's first nomination of the many thousands that she has had. And I'm also always so sad when I see John Cazale because, you know, he died so young uh, into his career and it was, uh, you would have loved to see what else he could have done. Um, the making of the film was an epic in and itself. You know, it was over budget, filled with crazy infighting over the script. But what we see on screen is just stunningly beautiful cinema, cinematography and of course all those memorable performances. Um, it's not without controversy. I think we both agree it is bigoted and simplistic about the Vietnamese themselves. Not a lot of thought went into really the Vietnam part of the film, the politics of the war, or even feigning realism about the combat or even like the timeline of what was going on in Vietnam. Uh, the point is that it's, it is a film about the home front. Yeah. In fact, a little um, uh, trivia tidbit that initially it wasn't even supposed to be a Vietnam film. Uh, and it got sort of transposed from its orig the original version of the script, which was set differently to being a Vietnam film, which is probably one of the reasons why the the Vietnam content is 
so culturally inaccurate and so racist and so not representative of either the experiences of of soldiers in Vietnam or the reality of of the Vietnamese because in many ways it's it's standing in for foreignness right i mean it's standing in for this like sort of ripping small town people out of their small town and plunking them down in something they don't understand and how does that sort of destroy you yeah definitely and and it's really um you know, you're talking about the point is that this you know the sprawling epic here begins in this very distinctive tight-knit Slavic community of, of Clareton, Pennsylvania. That's your neck of the woods, Leah. Your students probably know this area pretty well in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, and it takes place, you know, first in 1968. And we are immersed in this working class steel mill town populated by, I don't know, they're either Russian or Ukrainian Americans, shortly before a wedding. And, and also at the same time, the three principal characters, Mike, Robert De Niro, Stephen, played by John Savage, and Nick, Christopher Walken, are all about to leave for Vietnam. Presumably here, they, they volunteered. It's 1968. They're volunteering for this. So Mike and Nick are super close friends who both love Linda, that's Meryl Streep, who suffers living with an alcoholic father and, and kind of a no future existence in this small town. Chimino just drops us into this world immediately and lets the camera take it all in. There's minimal dialogue. You know, you really have to kind of eavesdrop on what's being said and what's going on. And we get a lot of this sort of ambient noise and dialogue mixed together, visual cues. Uh, it's how he directs and it's really quite beautiful. Yes, you're right. This is the neck of the woods that I, uh, that I teach in. And I'll, I'll tell you that my students, when I, when they uh, watch this film, you know, this town, like many towns is very, very familiar to them. Their people are these people uh, their last names are, in many cases, you know, Eastern European uh, last names, and and it's, that's one of the things that uh, my students we we won't probably talk about this later, but that they take issue with is that the final deer hunting sequence at the end of the movie, for some reason, Chimino got it into his head that he had to have the mountains be more sort of rugged and 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 stark and everything and so all of that was actually filmed in Washington state and it's one of the things that my students always protest against when they're outraged when they watch the movie because they're like there's nowhere in western Pennsylvania that looks like that that's not what it looks like when you go deer hunting <laughs> which of course many of them do i say that because it's almost Everything else is so uh, culturally and geographically accurate that it really kind of stands out like a, a sore thumb when, when we get to that that point. But, you know, in 1968 here, the, the guys have no idea what to expect in Vietnam. It's just a duty, something expected of them as they see it. But but they get a taste of what it might be like coming home when they see a veteran at the bar where this drunken wedding reception is being held. This guy who's uh, also, you know, kind of dressed in airborne, which is what the three main characters are going to be in, is just looking for a drink, basically. And he's stone cold, silent, just sullen. And the the guys are just, you know, they're loud and obnoxious and they want to get some insight about what it's like over there. They just see the uniform and they just want to be like, hey, man, we're going to be there too. What's it like? Our first inkling as well as an audience that there's something darker and deeper and 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 unknown 
about what it's going to be like. And we sense that. And so I think also the three guys are bidding in to see that as well. Let's play that clip where they, it does not go the way they think it's going to go. Green Beret! Hey! Okay. Woo! Jerry! Jerry, give the man a drink. Hey! Give him a drink. Sir! 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 It's not the interaction they were expecting. And of course, later we see Mike De Niro return pretty much the same way, being that guy. So the bonding and the ethnic rituals that Chimino steeps us in at the beginning of the movie really go by the wayside as we are suddenly in 1969 and the three guys find themselves prisoners of the Viet Cong. You know, this is the infamous Russian roulette scene with these cartoonishly evil Viet Cong torturing and killing their captives. Uh, Mike's quick thinking leads to the three escaping, going through more hell in the process. Nick is hospitalized with the trauma of it all, but few can really understand his psychological damage and the doctors treat him quite uh, callously and uh, he walks off into the middle of Saigon from the from the hospital and discovers an underground Russian roulette tournament that just goes on and on endlessly. And he's strangely drawn to it. And we're left with the impression that this is his life now. And I think that while it is really offensive scene through our modernized today, this whole kind of in-country sequence. If we understand it as the Russian roulette being this metaphor for the unseen mental damage, you know, an emotional damage done to, uh, to soldiers, in other words, PTSD, I think then that uh, kind of can help a, a a viewer get past uh, that part of it. And Mike uh, returns home just antisocial and withdrawn, kind of like the the veteran we just played. And he actually, you know, prefers even to hide from his own welcome home party. Stephen, John Savage's character is an invalid with no real purpose or identity as he sees it. He's, you know, it's like everything is torn apart from this close group of, of men that, that started the film. Mike and Linda, you know, 
grow closer together amid this despair. But Mike feels really guilty about Nick and obligated to go find Nick. Steven in the, shows him in the hospital all this cash he, he's really he's receiving on a regular basis from Saigon, and it's like who else could be doing this but but Nick. So Mike goes back uh, as Saigon is falling and discovers the roulette game, desperate to get Nick back. And when he does find him, he's this heroin addicted zombie. But here's one of the strange things, you know, about the film is that Saigon fell in 1975, but this is supposed to be just like 1970s. Like there's not even an attempt to sort of honor the timeline. It just makes no sense. It's proof that it's, again, not the point of the film as Chimino saw it. But the, the really memorable last game here between the between Nick and Mike is when you know, he's trying to get him to stop playing this game. And finally, Nick, in his last time playing, pulls the trigger and kills himself. And we go back now to the funeral in Pennsylvania, everyone getting together. Even Stephen is there. Everyone's not so much reconciled, but at least they're all in the same place. And the last scene is them singing God Bless America at the wake for Nick. Instead of treating Vietnam inaccurately, but going there. In the next film, we really never find ourselves in Vietnam at all, although it is ever present in the movie. Coming Home was directed by Hal Ashby, one of the pioneer new wave Hollywood directors responsible for a a slew of great films. Uh, The Last Detail, Harold and Maude, Shampoo, uh, the Woody Guthrie biopic, Bound for Glory, and Being There, just to name a few. The story is from Nancy Dowd, who worked along with Jane Fonda and John Voight for years to get this film made. And the heart of the film is the burgeoning relationship between Jane Fonda, a conservative officer's wife uh, volunteering at a VA hospital, and John Voight, a paraplegic veteran who is embittered by the war and by, uh, obviously, his um, experiences and injuries in the war. Bruce Dern plays Jane Fonda's husband, a gung-ho Marine, And Robert Carradine plays a veteran with uh, psychological trauma who we briefly encounter. Penelope Milford plays Robert Carradine's character's sister who volunteers with Jane Fonda at the VA. And both Jane Fonda and John Voight won the Best Actor Awards, unsurprisingly. So Coming Home takes place almost entirely in California in the late 1960s, the same time frame as The Deer Hunter. Uh, But remember, 1968 was the year of the Tet Offensive, and it really marked the year the U.S. committed uh, to a limitless war effort. Whatever illusions we had about quick victory ended that summer. And we see this through the eyes of Bruce Dern's character. You know, he has all this bravado, like in many ways the guys in The Deer Hunter, just really excited to get in it and prove himself, uh, and also pretty cavalier with, with Jane Fonda. When he does come home, he's also... A combination of of a, those characters in the Deer Hunter. He's sullen, he's dejected, and he's he's suicidal. The film begins with the typical housewife of the '60s, Sally, played by Jane Fonda, 
slowly becoming aware of the inadequate care that patients at the VA are receiving. And I think we also want to tie this into the Tet Offensive and the acceleration of the war, the expansion of the war that year, because it was easy prior to this to not really know what was going on and to not really be thinking about returning veterans because there still weren't that many of them. But as the 60s went along, and particularly after the Tet Offensive, the number of of, um, troops that were committed to the conflict rose hugely. And so therefore, the number of injured uh, soldiers that the VA was expected to deal with also shot up. So she's frustrated by other silent majority type women freezing her out. Um, you know, she's wanting to be engaged, wanting to be involved, but they they don't see why she wants to expand what she's doing. Her role is to be the wife of an officer and to to fulfill that role on the home front while they're away. But she doesn't want to do that. And she takes matters into her own hands. And while she's volunteering, uh, she befriends uh, Luke, who she knew when they were younger. They, you know, recognize each other. And and uh, and so there's a kind of a, an, a, a shorthand, a way in for her to kind of really get to understand the experiences of these soldiers uh, in a way that other other volunteers wouldn't. Um, so he, John Voigt's character, Luke, has been paralyzed in Vietnam, uh, and he's uh, still supposed to be engaging in rehab, but at a facility that's stretched super thin. And so he takes out his frustrations on anyone and everyone. But over time, the two fall in love and they remain so after Bruce Dern returns. And of course, this this complicates matters. Um, as Luke comes out of his shell and sees opportunities to be proactive about ending the war, Sally becomes engaged in this work and, and in these, these ideas with him. Uh, and so Luke is protesting and speaking about his experience. And meanwhile, Sally's husband, Bruce Dern's character, uh, retreats into uh, a more and more kind of angry and sullen uh, resentment. Yeah. And what really kind of sparks both Luke and Sally to kind of get involved, more involved, is the suicide of the character Robert Carradine plays. And he only saw two weeks of the war, we learn, and yet he can't shake it. Uh, and does, you know, commit suicide in a harrowing scene. And so that they both knew him well enough where that that sparked their greater involvement. And however, the problem with getting involved and being too vocal, that draws the ire of military intelligence, which is now um, interested in Luke and Sally. And they decide in kind of a real, real mean-spirited thing to do, uh, informs Bruce Dern about the affair. Like they come to him with this information thing. And that leads to this really memorable confrontation in the film with the love triangle is fully on display here. And soon after that, in a memorable final scene, 
Luke is speaking his truth to young men eager to fight about, you know, eager to fight in Vietnam. And he's speaking to them about his experience. At the same time, Bruce Dern is stripping off his uniform and wading into the ocean, drowning himself. It's really wonderful editing by Hal Ashby. Uh, and I think it's worth playing that scene so that you can listen to Luke's speech, which is sort of a culmination of of really the, the message of the film. Um, and I think it's really, it's not only visually stunning, we should watch it on our website, but uh, really listen to the dialogue. You know, you want to be a part of it and patriotic and go out and get your licks in with the U.S. of A. When you get over there, it's a totally different situation. You grow up real quick because all you're seeing is um, a lot of death. And I know some of you guys are going to look at that uniform man and you're going to remember all the films and you're going to think about the glory of other wars and think about some vague <laughs> patriotic feeling and go off and fight this turkey too. And I'm telling you, it ain't like it's in the movies. That's all I want to tell you because I didn't have a choice. When I was your age, all I got was some guy standing up like that, man, and giving me a lot of bullshit, man, which I caught. I was really in good shape then, man. I, I was a captain of the football team, and I wanted to be a war hero, man. I wanted to go out and kill for my country. And now I'm here to tell you that I have killed for my country or whatever. And I don't feel good about it because there's not enough reason, man, to feel a person die in your hands or to see your best buddy get blown away. I'm here to tell you, it's a lousy thing, man. I don't see any reason for it. It's a really um, poignant, seems sort of, uh, you know, not strong enough. The juxtaposition of him talking while Bruce Dern's character is, you know, the camera is cutting back and forth between Luke really desperately trying to communicate his truth to people and Bruce Dern's character is all alone on this beach and is incapable of reaching out to anybody because he's so damaged. And also, I got to say, it, this is, boy, is this ever an incredibly clear-eyed examination of what we've come to understand now, what we call toxic masculinity, that he is just a prisoner of his society's expectations of the inadequacy of any kind of training that he got about how to be a man who was in touch with his emotions, who was, you know, I mean, he's such a tragic character. I remember when I first watched this movie, you know, probably in the you know, early eighties or something and just thinking that he was just such a shit, you know, but when I watch it now through the eyes of an, an adult, I, he's, he really is just a, he's an incredibly tragic, uh, tragic character. Yeah, I think that, that how you said it, a prisoner, he's absolutely a prisoner of of what he thought he was supposed to be and how he, you know, when he was, before he get on that plane to Vietnam. And we don't even know what he, you know, like Robert Carradine, we don't know what he saw. We don't know what what prompted this. I mean, he refers to some, you know, killing civilians, I think maybe once or you know, whatever, collateral damage. And, but it's, uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, and he's the exact opposite of, the John Boyd character who who could easily have gone the same way had he not maybe met with met up with Sally and and also experienced that tragedy with Robert Carradine. But it certainly reminds you of just how great John Voigt 
was and 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 is sadly he's still a great actor but uh certainly his mindset is completely different and it's really kind of tragic when we look back on some of these films same with James Woods we've done films with with him and you know a lot of talent there and something something really strange happened to them and it's in a way it's kind of nice to reflect on these performances where they were at their best but yeah it's also also kind of sad he was so engaged and so willing to to be emotionally raw and to take risks and to question you know his place in the world and all of those sorts of things in uh, his earlier roles yeah it's very true and in our final film actually features some characters many decades removed who also are kind of stuck in and experience you know, toxic mas- masculinity in some ways and that's the five bloods which came out just a few years ago 2020 co-written and directed by Spike Lee. His frequent writing partner, Kevin Wilmot, wrote the script as well. He, he also worked on Black Klansman. And there's an interesting story behind The Five Bloods, you know, which is about five veterans returning to Vietnam to honor one of their fallen comrades and retrieve buried gold. It was originally intended for Oliver Stone, but he dropped out and Spike Lee picked it up and was determined to make the story about you know the unique experiences of black soldiers in Vietnam, and surprisingly, there's never been a film just fo- focused solely on this group that we know served in far greater numbers than their percentage of the overall population. And you can thank the draft for that. But in in 2020, Spike Lee finally gets to do it, and the film does receive the usual mix of praise and criticism from a Spike Lee film, although much more praise in this case. Yeah, and and the cast is uniformly great, and it includes some of Lee's favorites, you know, sort of from his stable of actors, as well as some really talented Vietnamese and French actors. The Five Bloods, who were all named after the Temptations, are the following. We have Delroy Lindo, the the magnificent Delroy Lindo, who I have to say, um, between this and his turn. Uh, as one of the partners in the law firm in The Good Fight uh, with Christine Baranski and Audrey McDonald. You know, it's been wonderful to be able to regularly watch Delroy Lindo do things again because he kind of was not, I don't know, wasn't doing a lot or at least not that I was kind of aware of uh, for a while there. Uh, Clark Peters is Otis. Isaiah Whitlock Jr. is Melvin. Uh, Norm Lewis plays Eddie and the late Chadwick Boseman uh, in one of his last roles plays Stormin Norman. Jonathan Majors plays Paul's son, David, and you have Johnny Trinwen as their intrepid tour guide. Jean Reno, who also we've, uh, this is, you know, it's great to see him as a corrupt French villain. I don't know. Can you have a Uncorrupt French <laughs> They're sure. the best kind. Yeah. And Melanie Thierry. That's right. <laughs> and Melanie Thierry as a French aid worker. The Five Bloods got plenty of awards, but um, I was very disappointed that Delroy Lindo did not win his category. It's a really, really impressive performance. Uh, the film begins, as Spike Lee films often do, with a, a montage of historical footage and some nice editing and with music that uh, that really emphasizes these images of black soldiers and important civil rights moments that link up to the Vietnam War. He has everyone from uh, Muhammad Ali to Angela Davis 
to Bobby Seale, uh, and he mixes it in with iconic moments from you know the war, not only in Vietnam but at home, like Kent State, uh, and ends with really the boat people crisis and then the, the sack of Saigon to kind of show the whole uh, experience really from the early '60s to the mid '70s. Yeah, and and one of the things you know we're talking here about a 2020 film. And so, you know, this is why this is still a Cold War film, because, you know, what Lee is trying to do here is is say, look, the domestic turmoil of now doesn't find its roots two years earlier or three years earlier or five years earlier. The, the, The turmoil that we are experiencing has its roots going back you know, a very, very long time. And one of those locations is the treatment of black soldiers and, you know, the the, the experience in Vietnam of, of black soldiers. The action from there moves to Paul, Otis, Eddie, Melvin, and their squad leader, Norman, you know, the Five Bloods, in a helicopter with the mission to secure the site of a CIA airplane crash and recover its cargo, which is a locker of gold bars uh, intended as payment for the Lahu people, a tribe, for their help in fighting the Viet Cong. So this was an actual CIA operation, this tactic of arming tribes that were you know, hostile to the communist government, and uh, in some cases paying them off, and in other cases screwing them over. Uh, but the Bloods decide to take the gold for themselves and bury it so they can retrieve it later. It's Norman who convinces them the gold can be used for reparations for black people, not for personal gain. And they actually learn about the assassination of Martin Luther King during this mission from, of all people, Hanoi Hanna, the very real North Vietnamese propagandist that soldiers will remember. This clip we're about to play is actually based on a real uh, bit of, you know, a real broadcast from Hanoi Hanna. Black GI in Memphis, Tennessee. A white man assassinated Dr. Martin Luther King, who heroically opposed the cruel racial discrimination in the USA. Dr. King also opposed the US war in Vietnam. Black GI, your government sent 600,000 troops to crush the rebellion. Your sole sister and sole brothers are enraged in over 122 cities. They kill them. Why you fight against us? So far away from where you are needed. Black GI, Negroes are only 11% of the US populations. But among troops here in Vietnam, you are 32%. Black GI, is it fair serve more than the white Americans that sent you here. Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die or to be maimed for life without the faintest idea of what's going on. And so this is what sparks Norman's decision to keep the gold. But the Viet Cong attack and Norman is killed. And a napalm strike destroys the site and all of the identifying 
landmarks. And, you know, we should say here that Spike Lee chose to have his actors play themselves in both timelines, 2020 and 1970. And so this is why Chadwick Boseman is cast as Norman and the other bloods are much older. The point is these guys are remembering past events as older men and Norman will always be the age he was when he was killed. He also, Lee, films the flashbacks in the style of 1970s films. And so we, you know, there's some some very meta stuff going on here because he references a lot of his favorite Vietnam films. And these Vietnam films have, in fact, become part of our, you know, cinematic vocabulary. And so we are watching these scenes of Vietnam with the memories of a Vietnam that we have watched on the screen so that we feel like, oh, yes, this is familiar. This is Vietnam. This is what it's supposed to look like. So as I say, very meta. Like all auteurs, Spike Lee, you know, he's very deliberate about his choices. And uh, you can find some great interviews on his his process uh, for this film. So then we move on to the blood that are reunited in present day Vietnam, which looks a lot like, you know, any major capitalist city, as we know. And they they learn the reason they're there is they learn a landslide has uncovered the crash site. And they basically have like private investigators helping them out here. Each of them, when they get together, we've discovered has had very different life trajectories, some successful and others like Paul Delroy Lindo, who struggles in every way. Paul's son, David, shows up unexpectedly on the trip, which makes it uncomfortable for the for Paul because they are estranged. And uh, and one of the strange things we learn about Paul is that he's a Trump supporter. He even wears the MAGA hat, which uh, kind of floats around the movie in different ways in a very symbolic way. Um, and he harbors a lot of rage that shows up periodically against immigrants, against the Vietnamese still. Uh, and he's very basic, you know, very unhappy, kind of in a way, think about our, our Bruce Stern character, but if he had lived. Um, his P- his PTSD is intense, mostly because he's, we discover, he's the one who accidentally killed Norman. Norman's not killed in the firefight. It's it's basically friendly fire, and and Paul's responsible for that. So here we have Delroy Lindo being interviewed by Rolling Stone, and he's talking about how unique it was to play a character, a black character who is a Trump supporter and how he initially was really bothered by that. And then Spike Lee convinced him why it was necessary. And so let's get a little window into how he envisions Paul becoming how the way the person he was and and how Vietnam helped him get there. I asked Spike to give me some more time with the script. He said, no problem. And I was able to rationalize in my head and empathize importantly with Paul's decision to cast that vote as he did in 2016. It was written in the script that Paul has a short fuse. So then my job became deconstructing what those descriptions meant. So Paul says in, in, in one of the scenes, when you've been fucked over as much as I have in life, you learn the signs of all those rat bastards out there. I took that literally as I was reading the script, meaning Paul is speaking about betrayals that he has suffered. And that comports with the experience of Vietnam vets that I spoke with. The slights, the betrayals, the loss, that's the genesis of 
Paul's emotional state. Yeah, it's a fascinating performance and it's really interesting listening to him, you know, talk about the process. So the plot gets pretty complicated to relate here, but basically, you know, in some ways it becomes a caper movie, oddly. Um, They wander back into the jungle to retrieve the gold, but others are after it too, including an opportunistic French embassy official and descendants of the Lahu people for whom the gold, of course, was originally intended the whole modern day Vietnamese landscape is is littered with remnants of the war, including landmines that claim several people. And of course, the French presence is a reminder that it all starts with colonialism. As Vin, their, their guide says, uh, the war never really ends. Paul is also killed, but after he gets absolved for his guilt, And then the film eventually ends with the survivors using the gold to better the lives of their community, whether it is a Black Lives Matter organization or Morehouse College, the HBCU that uh, Spike Lee attended. So let's revisit our lives agreed upon and get into some more details about how our three films relate to them. First is the idea that the Cold War is an an abstraction, that it's something that threatens all life because of the bomb, dictates foreign policy, and yes, occasionally intrudes in our culture with things like, you know, House of of Un-American Activities or the Blacklist. But ultimately, the Cold War is far removed from daily life. Even Vietnam, which tore the nation apart along political lines and drafted 2.2 million men, is often remembered in pop culture as a distant war that certainly traumatized front soldiers, but those who lived with those men near them or cared for them upon their return are kind of forgotten. Our films this week do a better job than most of tracing the legacy of this Cold War containment conflict in daily American life. Now, even in Clareton, Pennsylvania, the war has fundamentally altered everyone's life. I mean, yes, obviously the men who left for war as volunteers are changed. You know, one is you know, mentally ill, uh, one another is an amputee, and Mike is returns as a shadow of his former self. Now, the men who stay behind, like John Cazal and George Zunda, you know, the bartender, you know, nothing has changed for them. I mean, the tension is palpable, but that that it's no one knows how to to kind of recapture what it was like that that wedding. Eve, you know, so the ones the so all that ethnic loyalty and pride and the the deep roots in in a place like so specific and so dear to them are frayed by this distant war. Uh, there's a lot Chimino gets wrong about Vietnam, as we mentioned. I mean, he really doesn't even try because the story is about these people at home, but he does get really to to what the effects of the war. In a distant war can be like on home. No, it tears it apart. Yes, and and the and the women who let's face it are pretty non-existent in most films about Vietnam are fundamentally altered here too, and their experiences are really respected. You know, John Savage's wife, Stevie's wife, is a, a complete wreck. 
she's barely able to speak when Mike visits her. She's stuck with an infant and this husband who's an amputee is in a VA hospital who is also, you know, mentally altered. She barely knows him. Uh, she's, she is not equipped the same as the other women in Clareton. These are the working poor, you know, some of them are abused by their men, either partners or fathers or both. Um, the war is about to make things or has made things even worse. And their their experiences and, and how this impacts them is really given a lot of respect uh, in this film, even though, you know, their roles are certainly much smaller than the men's roles. But I'm struck when I watch this by how they are allowed to have legitimate relationships to the Vietnam War, in a sense, right? Like that, that they themselves are also uh, part of the casualties uh, of war. The other two films reflect this first lie too. It, it, I mean, definitely in Coming Home, you know, it's it's right there in the title, right? Uh, a harsh light in that film really illuminates the magnitude of the problems that lie ahead for what will be hundreds of thousands of severely wounded veterans, either visibly wounded or those with the internal wounds of PTSD, which was a new diagnosis after Vietnam. And also, as I was saying about uh, the deer hunter coming home, really foregrounds women. It's imp- uh, worth pointing out that Jane Fonda first started trying to make this film in 1970. So that commentary on this woman coming into her own in the context of, you know, second wave feminism, the social cultural upheavals of the sixties, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, she, she started trying to make this film, um, you know, eight years before it finally came out. Yeah. And it's amazing to watch this character because you don't, you know, seeing Jane Fonda play really, you know, a, a conservative housewife. I mean, her hair, her haircut alone, she looked like a, the wife of an astronaut. Very much this, uh, this idealized view of what an officer's wife would be. And she does it so well. She's kind of soft-spoken and, and kind of defers to Bruce Dern. You, we, you know, he's kind of a jerk even before he comes back. And, and so, the, you know, as you say, because he's gone and all the other men are gone, she has independence. She she has a car, she has an apartment, she has a job she takes seriously, even if it's a volunteer. And she starts to see for herself the magnitude of the problems, the in, the inequities, the story of John Voigt, Luke's plight hits home with her and she changes her view of the world. And a lot of the other women around her don't want to. And so her, it's a very personal journey of Sally from, you know, status quo that we might call silent majority type of woman to someone who would probably be a supporter of second wave feminism, if not someone in the forefront of it, you know, a few years later or a decade later. There's a symbiotic relationship between the Vietnam War and every social, cultural, and political movement going on at the same time. Um, I think most educated people know this, you know, if they took a, a good college history course, but do we see this reflected in pop culture? Not always. I mean, the war is distant, mythical at times, like Apocalypse Now. But our films that we chose, you know, highlight these connections in subtle and not too subtle ways. Coming Home is an early example of acknowledging what will become known as PTSD. As you said, it's a, a late diagnosis. It's finally this war that causes uh, mental health of professionals to treat it 
really seriously. Um, and, and coming home also dramatizes how this epidemic affects everyone else. And what I noted, I watched Jane Fonda's Oscar speech when she won, and she devoted it really to, to talking about disability and mental health. So I found this 1982 news report from CBS that actually discussed nurses and their own struggle. And it seems appropriate here because the point of it is to say that because they were women, you know, seen as ancillary to the war effort, that they, their own struggles as, as having to deal with uh, as caretakers weren't taken seriously. There were, of course, um, tens of thousands of women involved in, in the war effort, both directly in country in Vietnam, but also, of course, in those VA hospitals that are portrayed in some of our films. I don't have an innocence that other people have. I have this shadow looking over me all the time. Sometimes I just want to scream, you know, why? Why, you know? Margot just... Gibson, Vietnam nurse. She left the war 13 years ago, but the horrors of it still ravage her mind and the minds of thousands of other women who nursed all the wounded and dying men. Why was it me? Why did those people die? Why? It just didn't make any sense. And it still doesn't really make any sense to me. Oh. Nurses are taught to care for others, not themselves. Perhaps that is why so many of them suffered in silence for so long after Vietnam ended. Rose Sandecki was there. Now she counsels others. I know of several nurses who will say they have no problems. These women have either gained tons of weight, they are probably quiet alcoholics, they may have gone through 10 or 12 or 14 jobs because they're having difficulty in their jobs, but they have no problems. We have no problems. We're fine. This is a really uh, fascinating clip, and, and it also prompts me to uh, throw out another uh, recommendation to our listeners, which is a TV series from the, I think, the late 80s, early 90s, called China Beach, which was set at a kind of, in a sense, like a mash units sort of situation. Like it's 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 a, a hospital, it's a place for R and R, and uh, mainly focusing on the nurses and doctors who are working there. But one of the things about the show that's really interesting is that in its later seasons it goes back home. The later seasons actually trace all of the characters as they struggle to reintegrate into American society. Yeah, I do remember that. And I remember, and I think because it was network TV, we often don't expect too much of it, but it did really kind of push the envelope. Interestingly enough, part of the reason why those wounds haven't healed is because of the power of film. Benjamin D. Carvalho has written a really interesting article about how much the collective memory of the Vietnam War and its veterans was shaped by The Deer Hunter and Coming Home. Both movies, which came out in the same year, he argues, stripped out the politics, turning vets into heroes by making them victims of politics. It also cemented them as being, of course, overwhelmingly white, which was not the case. So through the narratives of those two films, Americans on both sides of the political spectrum 
were able to replace a memory of division and domestic turmoil and replace it with a collective memory of veterans' sacrifices. But that cohesion came at the price of silencing and erasing Black vets' experiences. Paul uh, Delroy Lindo's character is a broken person, a bad father, and a, a dangerous citizen of his country because of what he went through. And the other Bloods, they think they've left their problems behind, but returning decades later, it you know becomes apparent that they've been carrying this pain of being a black veteran, not just a veteran, but a black veteran as a unique experience all along. And in the quiet moments of what is, uh, you know, often a, a crazy film, there's no denying that their pain really is derived from serving a nation that, to not put too fine a point on it, despised them and broke all of its promises to them and did so decade after decade after decade, all the way up to the death of George Floyd and beyond, which is, of course, the the through line that Spike Lee wants to make. Yeah. And Spike Lee wants us to think about George Floyd. In fact, one of those many interviews I said he he made available on Netflix gets to that. Now, he he you know, uses the added decades of experience, you know, since Vietnam to make the film relevant to the present. Uh, and so even in the character's dialogue, when they're in the 1970s, they're in some ways talking about things that are, that matter in 2020. So like, like the, the speech here where Norman, um, the Chadwick Boseman character is justifying taking the gold that they discover. And he's really eloquent, as you might imagine, about why it's not really, it's, it's that it's not theft, it's reparations. And I want you to, to listen to his really impassioned speech here because um, it sounds like he could be making it in 2020. And notice the 1619 reference, which of course is something that is only going to be on the minds of, of Americans in the last couple of years and not something that probably would have been in, in, you know, 1970. We've been dying for this country from the very get, hoping one day they'd give us our rightful place. All they give us was a foot up our black asses. Fuck that. I say, if USA owe us, we built this bitch. So what you saying, blood? I'm saying we repossess this gold. Like they about to come repossess your cash your convertible now. <laughs> <laughs> we repossess this gold for every single black boot that never made it home. Every brother and sister stolen from Mother Africa to Jamestown, Virginia, way back in 1619. We give this gold to our people. You feel that? You feel it? And later he gets into talking about police abuse and other issues that are also at the top of pe people's minds in, in 2020. And, and I mean, in, in some ways it can be a bit jarring because of course, as a historian, I listen to that and I think you wouldn't have framed, you know, this character wouldn't have framed things this way, but I get that it's a style, you know, he's, he's doing it in order to draw these, these connections, even if it isn't the, the most 
accurate representation of, as you say, what would have been at the top of somebody's mind in 1968. Yeah, the character, you know, Paul's arc yeah. is is really the heart of the film, which at times is a mess and busy and all very spikely. Uh, but the message comes through at this moment. You know, the Vietnam War is 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 a giant source of pain for Black veterans, and yet another betrayal. That's what you know Chadwick Boseman's character was saying. That's it's an endless betrayal. We can trace so much back to the war. That's the point. Look what they've brought home with them. And while *The Five Bloods* ends on a note of positivity and reconciliation, it shows us these wounds are still open unless we acknowledge them continually and honestly. And Spike Lee talked about showing his film to an audience of black and brown Vietnam vets in an interview he did for Netflix when the movie came out. It was very emotional for all of them, as you might expect. And he talked about why he felt the need to focus on this particular group of veterans. It is my belief that we need a diversity of narratives because a lot of the narrative of these United States has been a false narrative. I'm gonna break it down like this. Young people over generations have not been taught the origin of this country. United States of America is based upon the foundation of immoral acts, the stealing of the land, the native people, the genocide, of the native people, the stealing of my ancestors from Mother Africa, brought here to endure slavery. That's the foundation. That's how this country was built. So consequently, the narrative has been fucked up. Because if you want to keep that narrative going based upon that, those are more acts, you make up lies about the people you oppress. Simple. How's that done? Novels, songs, film, and television. False narrative to perpetuate white mythology. People of color, black, brown, we also include women, our gay brothers, sisters, have been dehumanized in various art forms. Correcting that false narrative or diversifying existing ones is vital. That's what he does in The Five Bloods in between some of the more you know, ludicrous plot points in the story we talked about. Our point in this episode was to introduce or reintroduce Vietnam films that get to the war at home, right? This Cold War home front that emphasizes the pervasive influence that this conflict had on daily life far removed from Southeast Asia in the 1960s and 70s. Even when you think the war is in our rearview mirror, a film like Five Bloods reminds you it's never really over, and not just for veterans. I mean, the Cold War, as these films are trying to show us, reached every corner of America, every segment of the population. We might not think about it that way, but the decisions made on behalf of the containment paradigm extended to more than atomic bomb drills or more STEM classes in school. 2.2 million draftees, spiraling debts and social unrest, epidemics and disabilities and mental health crises, 
and increasingly more militant social movements on both the left and the right are going to leave their mark. Just remember, the Vietnam War is the Cold War, and it came home with a vengeance. Lives Agreed Upon is written and produced by Brian Krim and Leah Parody. Our theme was written by Simon Parody. We are a proud partner of the New Books Network and can be found wherever you find your favorite podcasts. For transcripts and links to what you hear in each episode, as well as bonus content, visit our companion website, liesagreedupon.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at lies underscore upon.